From The Ringer, I'm Tyler R. Times. When I spoke to NFL star Cam Newton in January, his mindset was clear. I want my whole career to be in Charlotte. Cam won't be getting that wish. He was released by the Carolina Panthers in March. Cam is a complex figure, and my interest in him goes far beyond his exuberant smile and transcendent style of play. Cam broke the glass ceiling in American athletics, ascending to a place in the sport that few black quarterbacks have ever reached, making his fall that much more dramatic. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, reporters, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. I uncover contradictions at every turn. How can the hardest worker on the team be depicted as a bad leader? And how can a franchise icon with an NFL MVP and Super Bowl appearance on his resume be so abruptly cast aside? The Ringer NFL Show presents The Cam Chronicles. The series premieres Monday, July 13th. Welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he's my top five show of the year every year. It's Andy Greenwald! What does that mean? Does that mean I'm all five of your favorite shows due to my many moods? Or I make My entire list? relationship with television is shot through the lens of being <laughs> friends with you. It's true. Wow. I think so. You know, like wow. before I was like, you know, it's good, 24, but who cares? Then I met you and everything Look at changed. you now. You're like a living, breathing TV concierge. Um... Greetings and salutations to watch listeners. It's Monday. Uh, I hope you guys are all getting excited for the uh, the holiday weekend. We've got one show for you this week, but what a show. What a show. So today, uh, in honor of Allison Herman and Miles Surrey doing that on the site, Andy and I are also going to talk about our top five. We're just going to do top five. I think they did 10 on the uh, on the site. But we've got some best of the year so far stuff on the ringer.com that you should definitely check out. Andy and I thought we'd get in on the action and chat a little bit about uh, our five favorite shows of the year. And then the second half of the show, we have a very special guest. The uh, One of our real avatars of this show, one of our real foundational characters. Uh, she plays Shiv Roy on Succession. So Sarah Snook is joining us uh, at the, in the second half of the show. We can't wait to talk to her. What a run we're on. This is great. Everybody's saying yes. I don't know what to say, man. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody has anything better to do except to talk to us. So all you got to do is ask, um, how are you doing? How was your weekend? Oh, you know, Fine. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question anymore. Do you? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I've been digging in the movie crates. I know it's kind of a hard pivot for me, uh, you know, known as Mr. Uh, no, no Cinema. But I saw two good movies this weekend. Okay. On the, on the TV box. Um, one was uh, Pedro Almodovar's movie from last year, Pain and Glory. Are you a big Pedro guy? Big Pedro guy. Are Love you really? an Almodovar film. I am actually. Yeah. Love them. Love them. And and I think you know this, that like in general, I'm a big fan, and I know you are as well. Uh, I'm a fan of creators who basically <laughs> spend... I'm a fan of creators, and I'm passionate about storytelling. <laughs> That's my Dos Equis ad. No free ads. But um, people who basically make the same story or the same movie or write the it. same song or write yeah, the same sure. book, and they just work through it over their whole lives. Like, sure. 
when I was I was out of town briefly, and I was up at a I went to this great used bookstore. Shout out to um, to Bart's Books up in Ojai, California. They are fans of the watch up there. They're wonderful people, and they're doing great. Check them out. They're open stores, mostly outdoors anyway. So yeah. you should feel That's safe it's, wearing it's your dope. mask. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, for example, I picked up a book by the great American author James Salter that he wrote late in life called All That Is. And you pick it up and dude is like 80 and you open it and it's just like, the book is basically like, Mark was a, was a bomber pilot in World War II and now he is had, now he's fucked his way through the second half of the 20th century. I'm like, God bless, God bless. He's still doing his book. Anyway, Almodovar is doing that and Pain and Glory is basically kind of his most autobiographical movie yet with just an outrageously good uh, lead performance by Antonio Banderas. Oscar nominated. Shout to mm-hmm. the big picture, which probably had more opinions about this back in the day. Loved this movie. Um, and then I've been digging into the Criterion crates a little bit. I wonder if we should at some point make a little, I don't know, just make a little recommendation guide for movies that we've been digging on the Criterion collection because it's and helping your, me get through this pivot pandemic. to Calle de Cinema is just one of the, the most unexpected moves I've had this year. And there's been a here, lot of surprises in 2020. <laughs> I know. what what I like to keep you on your toes. And I think that it's very much my brand that I, I'm, I'm a zagger when people zig, you know? Yes. And if we're doing the best TV of the year, time to talk movies. Um, but I watch Edward Yang's Taipei Story. And I dug yeah, out a lot last night. I watched. Uh, what did I watch this weekend? I kind of we, we needed a little bit of a pick me up, so my wife and I did a Bill Murray double feature of What About Bob and Quick Change this weekend. That was pretty fun. That sounds fantastic. Uh, Boy, that sounds good. What About Bob is pretty fucking dark, man. Have you ever thought about that? I remember it as being very dark. It's not like because I, you know, how like a lot of those comedies often would have like midway through. A completely out of nowhere introduction of like a new plot device would come in to unite those sort of warring factions of the comedy. And yeah. all of a sudden, like anybody who didn't like each other at the Caddyshack golf course or at the fraternity house or Beverly Hills Cop had like a huge criminal investigation that kind of took it away from the fish out of water story. That doesn't happen in What About Bob? It's just like this guy comes and ruins Richard Dreyfus's life and nobody believes him. And then it ends. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah. We didn't have to have expanded universes back then. There didn't need to be prequels or after credit scenes. Also, I just love that it was like the comedy of the year, Dreyfus, yeah. Murray. Yeah. I, um, people, I don't know if this is going to be video. People might see a slightly different backdrop from the one they're used to. There's no straight tell, boxes yeah. of Cheerios. And it's because I, I have been venturing out into my, uh, my office space here in Hollywood. Private, not private office, but this off room, you know, socially distant, responsible, et cetera. But they make a lot of uh, movies here. Mm-hmm. This is part of our movie talk. And the one thing, he, here's the thing, and I'm not intentionally trolling Sean Fennessy here when I say this, but generally there has been this um, presumption for years, right, that movies, the great films, they stand the test of time. But TV, the churn of TV means there's always something new. Mm. And yeah. it was only recently that the great series kind of last and live on in people's memories. I would say that the hallways of this Hollywood center uh, are a testament to why that is a lie because they are lined with the posters of movies that felt like very big deals when they were made and when you frame a movie poster you're like oh this is a moment in time that people worked on this sweat hours spent months years even Uh uh-huh right like right outside of my office there's a poster for the film the dukes of hazard starring johnny knoxville sean william scott jessica simpson and burt reynolds and there was a guy, maybe it was your alter ego, Joe Hollywood, who was just like, 
putting the pieces together, right? <laughs> like the Lego champion. It was like, we got Scott. We got Knoxville. If we can lasso Bert, we've got a hit on our hands. You know what I mean? Like there's a movie yeah. over here. It's like Jackie Chan. I'm like, Hollywood, you know, a legend, not just Hollywood Global. And Claire Forlani. I'm like, okay, that was a moment. Shouts yeah. to Claire Forlani. Yeah. What movie is that? The Jackie Chan, Claire Forlani movie. Did you, you, you forgot already? Don't, don't make me Google it. I, I remember it every time I go to the bathroom. Yeah, I think that, um, I think that, the, I wonder if that's changing. Because I, I was thinking about our, so this actually goes well into the top five list. Because when I was making, it's very hard to make a top five list. Because you, you realize that like you have to sort of start separating affection from absolute ab admiration, you know, and, and, okay. and awe. And I found myself really wanting to almost give deference to shows that have are repeat performers. So basically, we've been caught up in this in this kind of constant whirlwind of, okay, great, that show came out on Friday. It's completely done. What's coming out next Friday? What's, What's coming out in two right. months? And as I sort of keep my eye on the Metacritic.com release schedule, I'm like, man, there's just, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a drought coming. There's a little bit like there is like a little bit of a drought coming with the shows that are good. There's a big one coming. <laughs> yeah, there's after a that. really big one coming. And yeah. I, I was like, maybe we should be we we should take our time. You know, I know that you were like, let's let's take a second and let me like digest a little bit of dark before we go headlong into it. But I, when I think about shows that are able to kind of sustain interest over the course of several seasons, right. I think for this list in particular, I at least wanted to earmark a couple of things that I felt like I was like, okay. wow. You know, this is part of the this is part of the uh, not only the commercial um, proposition for television, but it's also can be part of the artistic proposition for television that a show can get good or get even better on episode thirty two and not just episode six. Yes, and I and I would also say I think that's a great way to look at it. I would also just say, anecdotally, back of the scorecard, chicken scratch here. This year, and obviously the second half of the year remains a big question mark because of. Uh, productions being shut down all over the world um well, yeah we, we year, probably will have season 1a of flora's lava that will be <laughs> what the show revolves well, around in november <laughs> I, that's why i'm saving my bullets on that one um just that this year has I, in my opinion has been stronger than last year to date yeah. um I, there I that. there's been a lot of a lot of really good stuff and before we get into the list the other thing that i wanted to call out and i wonder if you had something similar when you were going through your contenders um, I would say the surprise of the year for me, TV wise, is the emergence of Hulu. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, Hulu's been around for a long time. Who, who among us doesn't remember the Alec Baldwin Super Bowl commercials announcing the arrival of the service, however yeah. many years ago that was? But a combination of a programming team that really seems to have found its footing in the last few years. I think that, as we discussed on the podcast, um, The Handmaid's Tale Emmy win was a total shock to everyone. Sure. Um, and so they were still kind of figuring out what they were other than the place to watch New Girl reruns the next morning. I think they seem, the current programming team seems to have, have figured it out. Um, plus, at the exact same time, that there's this infusion of talent from FX on Hulu. So even if you had took out, which you shouldn't, but even if you did, took out things like uh, Mrs. America, um, Devs, the current seasons of What We Do in the Shadows, which we barely talked about, but we may refer to in a moment, or or Dave, which I think you're on board with, but I haven't I, watched yet. I am on board with it, yeah. We, I mean, even if you took those things away, you have Rami season two, you have normal people. Mm -hmm. um, 
you have uh, um, high fidelity, high fidelity, and you have the great. I mean, yeah. that is a knockout. So that's been my that's been my that's my top line before. We and get it into seems the I think that somehow uh, they've done this in a bunch of different ways. I, I certainly did not sit down here to to do a, a cape up for Hulu, but I, I would say that they've been able to make a couple of different choices that I would re- I, I'm pretty fond of. One is that they've come up with a couple of different ways to release shows that mm-hmm. sustain the interest in the conversation around those shows for more than 12 hours on a f- midnight on a Friday night. And they've also kind of gotten out of the way. Like, I, I don't really think of, of mm-hmm. Hulu as having a particular brand or making a particular kind of show. When uh, the Hulu, you know, logo flashes, I'm not like, a lot of pressure here. A lot of pressure to deliver Hulu. And they obviously have made some really intelligent choices, both in terms of who they're going to partner with, like FX, and, and both in terms of the shows that they're buying from overseas, from other production companies. So I just think generally, like that kind of like, if it's here, I will give it a shot, which is literally when Andy and I are like kind of going through the how we feel about Netflix or HBO or how we feel about Apple or Disney Plus or whatever. We're not really like, I, I, I could care less about the ups and downs and fortunes of those companies as companies. I think what we're looking for is the same thing we would look for when we were growing up and listening to music and we would be like, oh, you know, if it's on Def Jam, I should probably check it out. You know, like that right. someone somewhere made a choice that they thought that I might like something. And that's really that's really what this is all about. I love, um, not to continue just to speak about companies as companies, but I love this version that you've spun where, you know, Jim Hulu was like, you know what? I'm going to partner with those up-and-comers, the bright boys at FX, as opposed to Bob Iger giving the heavy thumb on the shoulder, being like, you're a new family. Get along. <laughs> but yeah. I think it, I, it's so far anyway, purely from the outside, it seems like it's, it seems like it's worked out. Uh, I think another thing that I would, uh, another theme of, of my list and of, of this year so far has been... By the way, nothing more The Watch than... A list episode that begins with 20 minutes of preamble about the theme and vibe and feel of a list. Where's Sam? We should get Esmail Zoom bombing this. I know. Well, we're, you know, you and I, we could kill time. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I mean, we we did start with Almodovar, so I would say that so I would people I, are people are riveted right now, is what you're it's saying. It's been very cool to have a couple of shows coming out where we're seeing some new faces and we're hearing some new voices. Um, not that I don't love having, you know, the new show from the creator of X to, to, to parse, but to have things like whether it's normal people or I may destroy you, or even in some ways, zero, zero, zero places that we haven't gone before, uh, maybe relationships or, or imagery that we haven't really seen a ton of. It's been a very, um, stimulating year in that way. Did you abide by the same rule that I arbitrarily applied to mine, which is I just did scripted shows that, that, that I, I thought did. that's what the list was? I okay. did. Yeah. So no, uh, no cheer for me. Uh, no floor is lava. No survivor. No top chef. No, the floor is truffles, a.k.a. top chef, <laughs> season 17. How come you got to salt it? Don't give floor is truffles away, man. You got to keep that to yourself. You're in the Hollywood center. Um, did you make it? Like numerical? Did you did you rank these things? I didn't really. If you if you want me to, I I have, I I have probably... two tiers. I have two tiers. Okay, two um, tiers for a list of five, or do you have like a backup five? <laughs> no, I have two tiers for my inside my list of five. There's shows. Jeez, Louise. All right, <laughs> all right. You go first, there, D- 
Dr. Detroit? Tell me what's tell me what I should be doing here. No, I mean, I feel like, look, we probably shouldn't bury the lead. I imagine our lists are almost entirely the same, at least at the top, right? Yes. Um, so there are at least three shows that I'm pretty sure we have on both of our lists. I think uh, we have one, the same three shows. Should we go? Should we go at the same time? No. <laughs> this isn't a gender reveal party. Just say I'm say I may destroy you, and we can explain why. I may destroy you. Yeah. Is this your? Is this? Do you think this is the best show of the year? I, I'm not going to say it because it's still ongoing. I've only seen three episodes of, I believe, twelve. So I don't really want to commit to saying that, but I, I'll say, as we said the other day, that this show currently has the belt. And just in terms of the, the, the criteria that we usually use to judge like e- exceptional work or stuff that really excites us and gets us, gets us hyped to talk about it and, and hurl superlatives at it, I May Destroy You really ticks a lot of the boxes. One of which being like the debut, not the debut, but the, the crashing of the party, let's say, of a really powerful, really unique really strong voice um, and performer in Michaela Cole, who obviously did show, Chewing Gum and has been on other shows that we've even talked about here on the show. But this feels like a larger scale coming out party for just a supernova of a talent. And the show just feels completely of the moment and mm-hmm. also to me kind of um, above and beyond the moment because it, at least through three episodes, is, is firing on cylinders that I didn't know a TV show engine could have. It's, yeah, it's, I, I'm I'm really excited about the show. You know, I, I was going to actually ask Sarah uh, about this when we have her on to talk a little bit about Succession, and and you know, I think that one of the reasons why Succession has felt so vital is because it feels very much of the world, or it it felt very much of the world uh, when it was on, and it felt very much about like our over reliance and over consumption of media, and the way in which business kind of impacts the the, the information that we get and the people who are making those decisions. Um, and I, I'm very curious about like how Succession meets another moment. I feel like this is a sh- I may destroy you as a show that definitely met a moment, and I, I don't even know that it was aware that it was going to be looked at in that way. You know, there's a, there's definitely a world in which this show could just slip by unnoticed in some some regards. But I, I was so I'm so happy to see the critical response, and I think anecdotally the 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 way in which people are connecting with it because it just feels like a show that could not have been made in any other time. I also think to that point, I think the the best works of art are the ones um, that are put into the world fueled purely by their own passions and interests and abilities, and then the world meets up with them. You know, the, it, it's not a it's not responding to anything other than the life, existence, and experience and aesthetic interests of its creator, which makes it feel pure, and then also makes it feel even more special that it's arriving in this at this moment in this year. Um, my second show after that. I think that there's like a group of three at the top where it's uh, mm-hmm. my second show is Better Call Saul, um, yeah. which I don't. Uh, we have the I, same three. I think I talked about and we've talked about so extensively that we don't need to belabor it. I hope that if you are if you are like the wait for it to hit Netflix person, I, I, I can't wait for you to enjoy it. I, I think I might actually watch it when it comes out in that fashion as a binge, you know, um, and I, I just can't wait for the last season. It's just... Um, it's one of the best shows I've seen in in a long time. And God, yeah. I mean, what else is there to say about that show? I don't know if we have the full, the same full top five, but of my top five, um, Better Call Saul is the only returning show. Um, and in that light, I appreciate it all the more just because mm-hmm. of what it does so exceptionally well and the type of long form expert storytelling um, 
to continue the, the the theme of setting up our interview, I mean, it's it's what I and many others are desperate to have back in succession. Um, and so it, it was it, it's a wonderful counterbalance the sort of brash new voices that are on the list. Um, those guys just know what they're doing. And it's, it's television hard. excellence. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, the third show, zero, zero, zero. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in case you guys, in case people missed when Andy and I were talking about this more, because I don't think people we talked seem about People to be slowly catching up to the show. It yeah, seems to be sort of I, penetrating. I saw like Danny Kelly, one of our NFL writers, who's a great guy. It was like, oh, zero, zero, zero. Like, how did I not know about this? Um, Amazon Prime show, like basically an international co-production set in Italy, in New Orleans. I thought you said an international Coke production. <laughs> it, it, it is that in G, indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, stars Andrea Riseborough and Dane DeHaan and Gabriel Byrne and an incredible new, at least to be, actor Harold Torres. And um, yeah, it is cinematically, I think, like a, the crowning achievement of the television year and is just an absolutely breathtaking crime epic. I think it's for a lot of people who haven't given it a shot yet, it might be the show you've been looking for. Um, for people who are nodding when we talk about Better Call Saul and want something, I mean, it's it's a lot darker. It's mm -hmm. a lot more global and expansive, but it might scratch a similar itch. Um, and yeah, it's pretty breathtaking filmmaking. It was cool to see that um, Mark Graham over at Decider has started running Sean Collins recaps of the show. I mean, it's been oh, cool. up for, for a couple months, but like, we can do this now. You know, yeah. we don't, we don't, it doesn't just because it dropped when people weren't checking for it early in the year doesn't mean that, you know, the, the media and coverage can't catch up to it. And so that might give people another kick, a, a kick in the seat to get moving on it. It's great. What's your next one? Uh, I'm not going to repeat myself because I just started raving about it on Thursday, but HBO's Betty. I, I love it. Um, young women skateboarding in New York City. Um, it just, purely makes me happy and yeah and tv should do that sometimes and most things in the world don't do that so <laughs> i just i implore people to check it out i love it i'm gonna go ozark which was the other show that was returning that i was talking mm. about i think it was also i mean aside from the fact that i'm i'm, I'm a big ozark fan and um it introduced me to tom pelfrey who i thought gives one of the performances of the year on this show if you had been watching banshee i know I know I, I fucked up. I didn't. And th this is the, that's the problem. Um, I would say you don't often see a show get like markedly better in its third season from its second season. I, I love I probably would have kept watching Ozark anyway, but I thought that the second season was this handbrake season where they were like, oh, so this is like really good and people like it. How do we make it sustainable? We'll just have episode upon episode where someone drives back and forth to someone's house to have like the same conversation over and over again and i think that basically putting laura linney in the spotlight to make the show essentially about her this season and her relationship to her brother was a real masterstroke and uh it's got one of the best episodes of tv i think that'll come out this year which is uh towards the end of the season so ozark was mine what's your fifth uh it's funny i mean you guys know that my television diet is reduced compared to my critic days, so I'm not picking anything that we haven't talked about at length on this podcast, but uh, normal people. Yeah. Um, a beautiful work, and maybe at this moment, in purpose of this list, the, the thing to say about it is, boy, it was fun to have it in our lives. It was really fun to watch it. Um, you know, it, it Those was, last uh, couple of episodes, just a blast. Just, just, just a just lot of laughs. laughs. Well, I mean, like the emergence of two... Great big shining stars. Yeah, um, it, it is always fun to watch, uh, including you know 
the watch's own Paul Meskel. But just that it, 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 was a, it was a totally enveloping experience and it was a pleasure to watch. Um, you know, we don't always talk about the experience watching the shows or the context, often because for both of us at different times, it's been even shows that we care about a lot, like Better Call Saul, it's often like catching a screener on a janky press site on a laptop, um, which is not the ideal circumstance. Watching the show without screeners on my television, on my couch, with my wife watching it, like this was a more complete experience and I and I enjoyed it for that. And also shouts to, we joked about this, but maybe we weren't really joking, the expanded Sally Rooney universe. Yeah, I know. Because uh, Hulu C- and- CWF come in now. <laughs> and, and, and BBC are like, let's run it back and yeah. let's get Lenny Abramson and the same creative team uh, to work on Sally Rooney's first novel, Conversations with Friends. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I, mean, it's I haven't a very read that. What, what are the vibes? What are the vibes on Conversations with Friends? It's really good. I actually liked it as a book better, mm-hmm. although I think it might... Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to sell them short. These guys can do it. But it, I, I would have said normal people felt like a more natural adaptation. Um, it's basically from the perspective of a young woman uh, who's a writer and in college and, is, and her best friend as they become involved in the lives of a slightly older, slightly more established literary couple. Well, liter- he's an actor. She's a, a writer. Okay. And there's an affair and there's a lot of personal stuff and it's in Ireland and, you know, our accents are primed and ready to go. Um, I would I would say normal people as well. If I had to throw an honorable mention or something to just be a curveball, I would probably say High Fidelity, which we've also talked about a lot, which I just thought was probably my most pleasurable experience watching TV this year. And um, yeah, I mean, Zoe Kravitz is incredible on it. And I also thought it really threaded the needle between kind of the more reliable um, invisible art of TV that you and I probably grew up with and the sort of like, oh, this this is just a really nicely executed B-plot in this half-hour mm-hmm. show along with some of the more um, more recent kind of flourishes that we see in television, whether it's a... Um, you know, splitting off from like the main narrative to to just track a supporting character for an episode or telling a story over the course of 10 episodes. And for as fantastical as it might seem to have a show that's about like a thriving record store in Brooklyn, I really would love to just spend as much time there as possible. I I probably would have had the great in my next slot, um, Mm -hmm. only hampered by the fact that I haven't finished it yet, which maybe. But have you been been cranking on that? Uh, Slow simmer. Yeah, it's there for me, sure. and I'm watching it, and I think it's great. Um, Outsider didn't make either of our lists, but I take nothing back. I loved watching that show. I loved yeah. plotting about it. Um, I hope they make more. Peak Outsider is pretty high. The best, yeah. the the best of that show is pretty great, you know. And uh, I think that you and I are, were on the record of talking about like sort of the the way that 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 show executed its ending and maybe whether or not it needed to be as long of a season as it did. But those first few episodes were so good and such an incredible marriage of like hard-boiled crime fiction with sort of a more fantastical horror which i know you love a fantastical horror outsider's been very very good to us and then the other thing i mean it didn't well it didn't make my list yet but i i outed myself to you earlier in an in a text um and i might as well share it with the group too is that i secretly i have been preparing myself to talk to you about what we do in the shadows mm-hmm. which is really great and thank you very special (laughs) and really funny obviously and i'm so have you did you start from the beginning or yeah no i'm still in season one and it's a delight and 
that's all I got. I got no excuses. It's not on, maybe season two would be on my list. People seem to love it. Everybody who's been talking about it, you're all right. Good job by you, everyone. Um, bad job by me. And that has become the show that I just ask people when they're like, I'm looking for something to watch. And I just always ask first if they've seen what we do in the shadows. And I'm like, if you have, if you haven't seen that yet and you're just looking for something to put on, start there. Well, that's kind of the thing. And, and this might be a longer conversation. It might be a repetitive conversation that we've touched on before, but there is a category of shows which does them a disservice to lump them into this category. But there's a category of shows that kind of are like little treats or I just keep them in my back pocket. And what we have, what we do in the shadows is one of them. Uh, Rami, which I really, really enjoyed season one of last year, but I realized in retrospect, I watched it at the beginning of of like pre-production and production when I was in Albuquerque. We never talked about it. I think it's great and I enjoyed having it. Um, We mentioned it last week, Insecure, you know, I've watched multiple seasons of that show over dribs and drabs. I'm not caught up at all on this season, which everyone yeah, it was, it was awesome this year, yeah. It's kind of hard. They're all such different shows, so it's unfair to lump them in together. Of those three that I mentioned, Rami is probably the one that has the most, like, serialized momentum, like, we could talk about it the way we talk about Outsider. Yeah. Um, what we do in the shadows is just so silly, other than being like... You and I have run into tri- this problem, yeah. We, we, it's, it's, like, ho- it's, like, it's like Chris Farley interview, being like, remember that part? That was funny. Yeah, it's it, we're not going to do... Like there is not like a mechanics of comedy podcast version of what we do that that like is it all entertaining? I I don't really know how to articulate. Sometimes sometimes there's like flourishes that are really great, but like what we do in the shadows just makes me laugh a lot. You could talk about the premise and you could talk about some of the individual performances, which were pretty uniformly amazing. But yeah, it's kind of hard to just be like, dude, this was so funny this week. I could probably do that about Eastbound and Down. But <laughs> I, I, yeah, I could potentially do that. <laughs> But that that we'll save we'll save the great rewatch of that for later in the year when there's nothing else to talk about. Um, bef- before we get into our interview, one other thing um, just to set up, Chris, the ultimate Hamill drop is coming this weekend, dude. On this country's so birthday. here's I would say probably if there's like a pie chart of the things that Andy texts me about <laughs> right now, uh-huh. there there's a couple. One is a couple weeks ago, I asked Andy if he was. If he had if he had ever read or if he ever had any interest in reading an early Larry McMurtry novel called Leaving Cheyenne. Okay. I don't yeah. have the text in front of me, so I am paraphrasing. Oh boy. But it was essentially like, nah, dog, not really into that cowboy shit. <laughs> this is a very early novel from Larry McMurtry. It's it's like around like when he wrote HUD. I think it's part of that same series of novels. And it's about a love triangle on a Texas ranch in the 1950s, if I'm correct. Yeah, it was before he wrote Last, Pic- uh, Last Picture Show. Right. So Andy was like, no, not, not for me, buddy. Then, like a week later... <laughs> no, wait. Let me just... In my defense, I have been spending a lot of time in McMurtryville. We've uh-huh. even talked about it on this podcast. But it is, again, I'm a zagger when people zig. People are like, oh, so you've read Lonesome You Dub zagged and yourself, it's... though. I zagged myself, always. <laughs> I'm the loser here. But I'm saying... I say I love this guy, this writer, great Texas writer, great American writer. And everyone's like, oh, Lonesome Dove and like all this, all the, all the cowboy shit. And I'm like, no, no. I like his cerebral books about young writers and Hollywood types. And they're like, I didn't even know he wrote those. So I read, I, I just can't stop reading his books. And then I read Last Picture Show, which is just a masterpiece. And then shout out to Bart's books. I just found like a beautiful mass paperback bul- version. Bulging yeah. mass market paperback. <laughs> of the classic Lonesome Dove. It's 960 pages proud. 
And now Andy sends me text messages about crossing the San Antonio River with a with a cattle herd. I get it. I get it now. <laughs> this book is about a cattle drive. These dudes don't even leave with the cattle until page 250. It is the ultimate flex. So he texts me a lot about LD, which I'm also yeah. reading along with him. I had stopped after about like 300 pages just because I felt I felt alone. Honestly, I felt like who cares? No, and no, so, no, I picked it no, back Captain up. Call. I am your Augustus McRae for this long, I picked long it back ride. up. And the other thing that Andy texts me about is Hamilton. Yeah. Yes, well, Hamilton, look, we've talked about it on the podcast before when we both got the incredibly fortunate chance to see it when it was on Broadway. Uh, I think we talked about it with Jonathan Groff a little bit when he was on the podcast. Sure, yeah. Um, so we are, <laughs> again, we zag rather zig. We like the hip-hop musical based on the life of Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton. I know that's a wild, wild uh, take. But it's also the second and third life of this show is with children who become obsessed with yeah, it. And yeah. And who really want to see it. And obviously it's extremely hard to see and expensive. And now there's no live theater anymore. So the fact that this, the movie version, which for people who don't know, is the, they filmed the original Broadway cast a couple years ago and they were going to save it to be a big release next year. Uh, is coming to Disney Plus this weekend mm -hmm. in honor of our nation's birthday. So and your children the, the, who love we are this show, hype in our, but health. they have yeah. never seen it, correct? Yeah, correct. They've seen they, they've seen what many people have seen. They've seen uh, there's a Tony Awards performance of the the title track that is available <laughs> on the YouTube that has been seen many times. Uh huh. Um, but that's about it. Do they know like? They know who Lin Manuel Miranda is. They know who like Leslie Odom is. Or do you think that this is going to yes. be like, oh, that's that's him? They've seen it. Well, Lin Manuel, yes, I believe many of America's children know who he is. Um, also, remember Mary Poppins Returns. Oh so yeah, of course. Yeah, he, he 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 is he is a god to a uh -huh. certain generation. <laughs> but yes, they know, and they know what it, you know. There's a thing that that kids do where it's like, oh. That's her. That's Eliza Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's just it. And so they know like images and they've seen pictures, but like to see the whole show, kind of, kind of a big deal. And and I'm excited for everyone who hasn't gotten a chance to see it, which is most of America. It's incredible. I know. I know. This is really cool. Uh, all right. We're going to stop there. So we'll probably have some Hamilton content next week. We're going to stop there. We're going to stop down for our uh, interview with Sarah Snoop. We have uh, finger on the pulse, Greenwald, texting about 35 year old. Uh, Westerns and recent Tony Award winners. This is, this is who I've become. We'll be back with Sarah after a word from our sponsors and we'll talk to you guys next week. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Blue Moon. Don't you think some once in a blue moon moments should happen more often than once in a blue moon? Blue Moon is on a mission to celebrate and inspire more of those moments. Just like those looking for the special in the everyday, Blue Moon takes a twist on the traditional Belgian wit. Blue Moon was created during the 1995 baseball season at the Sandlot Brewery at Coors Field in Denver, Colorado. Blue Moon's founder and brewmaster was inspired by the flavorful Belgian wits he enjoyed while studying brewing in Brussels. He carefully crafted an unfiltered interpretation of those brews, incorporating Valencia orange peel for a subtle sweetness, coriander for balance, and oats to create a smooth, creamy finish. It's a one-of-a-kind appearance and bright taste. It's a bright, well-crafted beer with a twist of flavor, refreshing notes from a full-flavored beer unlike any other. Why the name Blue Moon? Once in a Blue Moon should happen more than once in a Blue Moon. You can have a Blue Moon 
help whenever you want. I mean, when is it not happy hour anymore? But Blue Moon is the perfect beer when you're just trying to unwind from a long day at work. The next time you're out with friends or just enjoying a night in, reach for a Blue Moon. It's the beer you can enjoy every day. You can have Blue Moon delivered by going to get.bluemoonbeer.com and finding delivery options near you. Blue Moon, reach for the moon, celebrate responsibly. Blue Moon Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on The Watch. Uh, I know you're calling, you're Zoom with us from Australia. I guess it's morning yeah. there, right? It is. It's early morning. It's 9.15. Is the world better in the future? Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. What time? Where are you guys? You're in We're in LA. LA. Right? So it's late yeah. afternoon here in LA. And okay. it and things sucks. Are bad, so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, how have you been doing? Because I, I was, we have a lot of questions about succession and you, and sort of your relationship to the show. But I'm really curious about whether or not your your relationship to the show and the character has changed even over the last couple of months. As, as sort of, you've had a little bit of perspective. Yeah. 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 I mean, certainly has made me uh, want to get back to work more because I miss it a lot, which is nice. Like it's you know, heart growth. What's that absence make the, makes the heart grow fonder? That sure. kind of vibe. <laughs> Like we had a um a Zoom meeting. I think the first time I saw everybody was on a Zoom meeting with 140 other participants, uh, with like basically the entire cast and crew. And that was whilst it was really overwhelming, also made me go, Oh, I miss everybody. <laughs> um but then yeah, and then that's just increased increased my uh desire to get back to work. But uh, you know, you have to it's like a hurry up and wait, wait and see. Of course. It's kind of uh overwhelming to think about because had we been talking to you in normal times, I think a lot of the questions that I had would have been just the incredible uh, jigsaw puzzle that putting a show this amazing and ambitious must be. I mean, I, I, I used to think that your production, uh, your uh, line producer must be the hardest working person in show business yeah. just to navigate everything. <laughs> yeah. And then now, uh, not only uh, pulling off a production, you know, once hopefully we get the green light and health and product, health and safety protocols are in place, but just bringing in the cast from all over the world. What's what's the vibe? I don't envy Scott's job at the moment at all. Like, and also then recently, what it was the Europe banned entry for American citizens to yeah, yeah that's yes. like oh okay. Um, I guess we're not <laughs> shooting in Europe. That's because we're great now. <laughs> right? Now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're like you guys are. You guys got it too figured out. So, so since we're starting with the very sexy topic of line production. Um, I sort of have a two-part question about it. Let's do it. I, it's kind of a two-part question. Two-prong attack. Go on. The, the first part is a little wonky, and the second part might be slightly depressing. So I want to give you the heads okay. up about that. Yeah. Um, but I think you can tell what it's generally about. I mean, basically, Chris and I love the show, and we talk about it constantly. And we are kind of in awe about the size and scope and the budget and the ambition behind it. And what we see on screen, it seems like it mirrors the Roy's own personal budget and extravagant mm -hmm. taste. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. When you are shooting in New York and London and in a yacht off the coast of Croatia, <laughs> yeah. do you block shoot locations or is it just, well, episode seven, time to hop on a jet? I mean, in the old days, how did it actually work week to week on a show this sprawling? We shot pretty chronologically, which was really great. Um, not all the time, but for the most part, it's like, okay, we've got this location, we're going to Croatia, um, so we're going to shoot this little block here. But we also, for, you know, 9 and 10, for instance, we're in Croatia for the yacht, but then also um, when Roman gets kidnapped, 
uh, we use parts of Croatia there. That was like the only time that we really did shoot super out of, out of order. But once you go to a location, we sort of, we tended to shoot it out, I guess. Except in New York, where there we're still in New York and and those locations are there, so you'd come back to them reasonably frequently. But we also have like you know the studio sets and not yeah the the Logan's home we have it as a studio now, which is a um, you know built version of something else in the city. No, so just I I have to bring the hammer with the depressing part now is you have this large <laughs> Zoom with everyone. Was the tenor of the Zoom, well, guess what? Season three is set inside the safe room. Like, <laughs> what, how, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad it's not our job. I'm sure you're glad it's not your job. But yeah. what, what can one do? And what is the th- current thinking about, about totally. translating the show to this era? Yeah, no, uh, it, w- it seemed to be like, which I think every uh, work meeting um, in no matter the industry seems to be, is like, we're working on it. Um, right. so, <laughs> that always works out. Yeah. Which seems to be like governmental policy as well. Like, we don't know what's going on. Yeah. We're working on it. Um, yeah, it was, it was um, it, you know, positive and optimistic because, um, because of the fact of we're working on it. But uh, I think, you know, we're sort of still in the turmoil of going what the F is going on around here. (laughs) So it's it's a difficult one. And I don't think, you know, Jesse's a pretty, um, uh, he's an amazing writer and and the the writers have been working so hard kind of creating this season. I don't think they would want to just um, compromise and chop and change and go like, all right, the whole thing's pandemic related because hopefully by the time season three is shot and comes out, then hopefully this moment will be a moment of like, that's so in the past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be just wonderful? But, you know, one of the things that's so amazing about the show is how it straddles that line of being about our world, but not being quite in our world. You know, and, and so if you guys had conversations about how to process these last six months or, or, or three months, really, it, within the world of the show, or, or, or have you as a performer even started to think about that? Yeah, not not directly, but certainly as a performer, I think, you know, we play um, wealthy billionaires who are all white. Uh, I think you kind of uh, have your head in the sand if you're not taking notice of what's going on in the world around you. But I think I read something Jesse um, spoke about recently, whereas if you put your hand too heavily on the scale in terms of um, talking about that in a show, it it would feel too heavy handed. And I think the success of the show rests in the um, respect of the intelligence of the audience that they're just going to get it. There's a moment, it's one of my favourite little bits in um, season one where Greg, it's his first day at work, he's at work, he's at a little cubicle and he's watching the like Welcome to Work at Waystar video and it's talking about diversity and it's talking about how they're all inclusive and there's, you know, multifaceted people on, on screen and he sort of gets bored with watching it, looks around, looks over the cubicle to see about seven 65-year-old white dudes with grey hair filing into a board meeting and it's such a quick little moment and the scene is about Greg looking around and wanting to be elsewhere but then if you're really watching, there's like there's something else going on in terms of the subtext of like how you can say one thing and actually do another with sure. corporate policy and, and all of that. Yeah. There's something so wonderful about the show and, and it feels natural now, now that we've had two seasons to <laughs> adjust and understand and appreciate it. But early on, there must have been some very crucial decisions made to make this show not about the world as it is and not specifically to skewer uh, satire-rich targets, 
but rather to make a show about these characters first and foremost. And then everything else yeah. kind of goes from that. And once you have that orientation of the show, it's allowed it to open up and to become its own thing. And and then I think be in a better position to actually comment on the world. Yeah, that's right. And and also like what uh, these characters are completely flawed <laughs> um, and multifaceted. <laughs> and what? Also, Don't spoil it. We- <laughs> <laughs> But also, I mean, we also love them as well. Like, I mean, Tom's an absolute, you know, <laughs> but but he's also you can go like, well, he's kind of bullied by Shiv, so we'll forgive him a little bit. And then he like, so Shiv, we won't forgive Shiv for that. But actually, she's kind of bullied by Logan. Okay, well, we'll forgive Shiv a little bit for that. And then you right. get to Logan, you're like, okay, man, come on. But also, we know like something in your history. Oh, damn it. We'll forgive them little bits, but okay, we'll endeavor to to do better then. That's what I like about, you know, like complex storytelling with with interesting and multidimensional characters. Also, we like to we like to love people, but we love to hate them on television. Yes. You know, and so so totally. either way the emotions Delicious. are flowing. But that's yeah. so complicated, yeah. right? Because I think that often especially I think in the last few years I've heard this come up a lot more. And Andy and I have had conversations with folks about this with in regards to succession where it becomes like well, are they likable? Like, do I want to mm. spend time with these people because are they good people or not? Mm. And that never really occurred to me with your show. I mean, I just thought that the level of writing was so good. And I also don't necessarily need to like people to watch a TV yeah. show about them. But do you find yourself ever having that debate internally or on the set about, mm. oh, yeah. would anybody ever want to, why would you want to, like, because I was, I was wondering if you actually, when you see people react to the show and they're like, I'm team Shiv or I'm team team yeah look i mean like it, are you like you're not really seeing it the way i see it no i think um i mean i'm lucky i'm not karen because he gets uh people on the street sometimes like hey you're an asshole <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> is it not in real life thank you very much um so it's you know I, I feel at least lucky that i'm if i get to play shiv and so people can get behind her in some way but i like that they don't you know does a character need to be likable for you to enjoy watching them like we as you said we like love to hate them and I, I don't know. I, I, I think, this is, uh, you know, like with with Shiv, she's such a uh, interesting and and as we said before, like really flawed uh, person. That when when she's like doing something like the scene in in episode nine with Kira, my kind of approach to that, and I kind of have to be really, really blinkered about. Oh, she, of course she would do this. And of course, this is, the, this is the right thing to do. And of course, I believe this is the right thing to do. So much so that I came out of it afterwards. And then when the um, when the uh, when it screened, when episode nine screened, and people were like, I can't believe she did that. She was she was like they had such anger towards Shiv that I'd forgotten how bad what Shiv had done yeah. <laughs> really was. That I was like, oh yeah, that is not the right thing to do in terms of, you know what I would want to do as, as Sarah or I would want to be coached to do as Sarah, that's the wrong thing to do, but it's right for those two characters in that moment for the, like, for them to prosper individually, not as a group think, not as like for for society to prosper. It's just for them individually. I think that's what like the Roy's are about in the end. It's like, what's going to make the Roy's uh, more successful in life, not what's going to be better for society. Well, as you, I'm glad you mentioned that scene with Kira because I was going to bring it up as well. I, I was wondering as you play the character and as you have the opportunity to um, grow with the character, learn more about the character and play her you know, uh, repeatedly, do you continue to play scenes just as an actor fully in that moment and in that decision and that's where you are? Or do you like to keep in mind the totality of the character? Because I noticed that people 
when talking about Shiv, they, you know, they maybe will point to a scene where she is like her namesake uh, prison weapon, um, su- such as the scene with Kira or the scene, you know, the, the wedding night scene with Tom. Mm. But there are also these wonderful scenes where she's absolutely on her back foot. You know, there were a couple of Holly yeah. Hunter scenes like that or with Logan. Yeah. Do you like to have both sides of the coin in your oh. head or are you present in one? Present in one, but loved because we don't know. I mean, we've chosen also in some ways to not know what's coming ahead in any of the episodes. Mm -hmm. So, and I really love that, you know, humans, we don't know what's coming ahead in life. I mean, if we did, we would have prepared for this moment a little better. (laughs) So it's, I, what I like about that is that there's a trust from the creatives, like Jesse, the writing team and the directors to go, well, you know, your character, so you'll just react how we, you know, to whatever we write. And then there's a trust from my side and the acting side to be like, well, you know our character so well that you come in, you say the say the words on the page, and that's the moment for that day rather than <clears throat> trying to like, I don't know, I, I've never worked this way where I haven't plotted an arc or haven't known what's going to happen at the end because I come from a theatre background and, and or film you always know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's there's something so uh, liberating to not know and to just have to remain in the present moment. And also because of the way we shoot with, there is a lot of improv once we've got what the what the actual scene written is. And someone like Kieran will just throw something at you that you kind of have to be <laughs> so <laughs> in the moment, living fully in that moment with the, yes, the breadth of totality of all the different things that she could be in that moment to be able to go like, oh, Kieran just like totally smacked me down. I've got to come up with something now. Mm -hmm. But I was having a really intense scene like this, you know, thinking about the seriousness of something and you have to quickly switch. I think that's a, you know, that's just a very human thing, right? Suddenly you're laughing before you were crying. I'm curious because, you know, you mentioned the idea of not necessarily knowing what's coming next, but one of the fascinating little elements about this show that doesn't get t- remarked upon a lot, I think, is the some the, the gaps between episodes and what c- transpires maybe between an episode. And I love the little references to things that maybe we haven't seen on screen or just like the exposition mm. that gets handled in these really small gestures. But I was curious for you when you have a scene like you do say at the end of um, episode three in the second season. At the end, of, I think it's that's safe room. I believe was episode three, and you have that incredibly emotional scene with Kendall, which is possibly the most vulnerable uh, moment between the two of you in the, in the series so far. And then there's, I think, in episode four, you've you know it it kind of spins forward a little bit. And I, I was curious whether or not, like in terms of continuity for character, you think much about what transpires between these episodes or between these scripts even, because mm-hmm. I would imagine for anybody, you have a moment like that with your brother and you probably think about it for a week or you think about it for two weeks. Yeah. But in the next time we see you, you're back at it with, <laughs> you know, with vigor. And I, I, I was wondering whether or not there's a much, there's much writing that goes on in your head in between the episodes. There is a little, and, and the, it's, it's great because, um, we're kind of given liberty to use our imaginations as much as we want and as much as is useful. So in, if there is any improv or we're just on a wide shot here, but we'll become, we'll be probably we're coming into coverage, but we're shooting over there, but obviously you need to talk. You're not sitting in the middle of a living room, and, you know, one hello to somebody and then that's it. But the liberty of being able to like create and invent with your imagination and, and like put in those histories of like, Oh yeah, how was that? Something, you know, whatever it was two days ago, three days ago, then like, if it gets into the show, it's that's that's the thing that's real. And if even it's just by saying it, it creates it as as real for that moment. Yeah. So I guess I don't I don't like come into 
you know, episode four and think about what's, you know, diligently what's transpired since. But if it kind of comes to me in a moment of, of imagination, then, then that's the decision of, of reality. It's, there's so much freedom and flexibility in that. But then also there was an there was a, um, episode where Shiv had a moment and she was catching up with a friend which I don't know if that sounds weird to you because it sounded weird to me. <laughs> she, she had a friend from college and, and we did like the read through with it. And Jesse afterwards was like, I don't know if this works. I'm like, yeah, something about seeing outside their bubble at this moment is not useful. And something about Shiv having, I'm sure she has friends. I'm sure. Are they great girlfriends? That Are she, we sure? Know, <laughs> yeah. with on a Friday night. I don't yeah. know. But yeah, that was like, that was a thing of going, I guess I don't want to make that decision fully, but yeah. I presume she has friends, but I'm willing to, you know, be open to the fact that she might not, you know? like <laughs> it, it also adds so much to our understanding of these people and the subtextual drama all the time, which is that they're actually quite vulnerable and lonely because they only have each other. And, totally. and even if they, you know, whether they love each other or they hate each other, they're still being bound together uh, and that yeah. keeps them all afloat somehow. Yeah. yeah, like turning up for um, Kendall's kid's birthday in like what, the second episode or first Wait, episode. Kendall has kids? <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're there and I was like, we're walking around doing the scene. I'm like, what are we doing? Why did the Roy's come to their own theme park? Yeah. Yet, kind of believable because it's really sad yeah. that they came like it's really nice yes we're all really strong family of course we show up for your niece's birthday but also you're just walking around bored as hell and probably eviscerating one another to do. yeah eviscerating one another, but like pretending you've got better things to do but you still showed up you don't yeah like. exactly you just really don't <laughs> um so i i don't i think i'm not alone in this my uh my love affair with succession was not love at first sight i'm sort of a slow slow fall and then all of a sudden the next thing i knew i was uh obsessed and yes. I, I, I wonder if there was a moment for you in the cast where you suddenly looked around and realized that the engine was humming to the degree that it was, because I, I, I admire the show and the construction so much because not only are your lead performances so brilliant, but it's an ensemble show. And mm. Jesse seems to understand that so viscerally, you know? And so the opportunity to put J. Smith Cameron, oh, she, there she is in, the, in this pilot in the second episode. And then, oh my God, she is and always has been one of our great actors. And here she comes. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and so now when to watch the show, part of the excitement is not just what is the Roy family going to do next. It is what is this ensemble of actors uh, capable of? And the game of sort of high stakes uh, pinball or ping pong or give me a game yeah. where there are a lot of balls flying in a lot of different directions. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe there should be one. What squash, are they going? Like what are they multiplayer squash. <laughs> multiplayer squash. Uh, the game of Australia, from everything I understand. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> was there a moment when you realized that 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 engine was humming, and and what was that yeah. like to look around and realize it? I reckon. I I feel like the Thanksgiving episode because mm. it was the first time that we got back in the first season. It was the first time that we got back to sitting around a table and talking, which sounds really mundane, but that was the thing that really, um, I think made me understand what the show was when we first started shooting the pilot. Cause Adam, we had that, um, I don't even think it comes up in the pilot a huge amount, but we're at the table for Logan's birthday in, in the pilot. And he set, uh, basically a, a circular dolly track around us and had two cameras and just shot the hell out of it. Not even, we did a bit of coverage, but then it was like, okay, just have dinner. Like just have lunch, just eat and talk and invent and create. And so, there was all sorts of wild and random ramblings that were happening that 
if it doesn't get into the show, then like wipe it because it's not real or <laughs> use it again and, and see if it works next time. Mm-hmm. But when we got to do that again in Thanksgiving, that felt more like purposeful and more concrete, I guess, because the pilot part of that was getting to know the characters and getting to know how we related. And it felt like the first time we had a rehearsal, but it was on film. It may not be used. We'll scrap it if it's not. But then when we got to Thanksgiving, it felt like, okay, this, all this is up for grabs. All this could be used. And it's, we're back to throwing something across the table, throwing something over there. Each of these characters has a reason for being there and, and a kind of conflict dynamic with somebody else on the table that yeah, it's just so rich when you have that. We had it again in like, I love those dinner table scenes. We had um, in episode 10 when Logan's doing the uh, uh, who's it going to be moment. Mm-hmm. Same thing. It's like 11, 11, 12 people. And Jesse's managed to write all these different objectives and conflicts and everything around the table that everyone has a reason for being there or a reason for being silent or speaking up that it's just so dynamic. It's great. And, and everyone scores a point. That's the amazing thing. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. every, every performer there gets their, gets their yeah. shots in. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, in your time away, because I guess this would be typically when we would be ramping up to a next season of Succession being released. So you'd probably almost mm. be soon mm. doing like press for it for coming out. Is there anything like a, a thought or an observation that you had in this sort of disrupted production cycle now that, you know, you're like, oh, I, you know, I, looking back on the, my character or even looking back on the story of the Roys, I think differently now because I haven't been on the treadmill of making the show. Like, have you had any sort of epiphanies or moments of clarity about anything that you would be able to share? Yeah, I don't know, actually. I think, I mean, apart from, like I said earlier, that I really miss it. I yeah. really love it. But do you know what? Actually, part of what that is, is, um, being able to go to work and know that everybody there is better than you in a, in like, in a different kind of way that you feel challenged and invigorated and satisfied by your work to go. I know that like I get better by going to set, to set on that set. Um, and so that I miss and that like, I really realized as well, like not having the intellectual stimulation from reading those scripts or researching a thing that I'm like, I don't know what that money term means. Um, I'm going to have to look up, you know, something on the internet about that. Um, and just all that kind of invention and, and use of imagination, that kind of, uh, that world of it I miss yeah. and realize how much I think in this time. It, it's amazing to hear you say that about going to work with people who you know are better than you. It's what it's the same words I heard Chris say about doing this podcast with me on multiple <laughs> occasions. So it's nice to know that it's a universal sentiment. Um, I, I have to, and you've been very generous with your time, we should let you go, but I, I have to ask, all this talk about just letting the cameras run and of Kieran just letting letting Kieran run. Is it's got no filter. Is there a succession blooper reel? Like, could HBO oh. just bless us with that in the interim? That feels like it's there. There is. There is. We've, I've seen... Um, you know, the rap party, there was, there was, um, you know, a collection of this is, you know, hinting at the season to come after season one rap and after season two rap. Um, but I've never seen it in the light of day. And there's so many scenes that got cut as well. And like, oh, I would love for, for HBO to release that. But maybe, you know, it's in the vault somewhere. The director's cut of Kendall's rap probably needs to get out there at some point. <laughs> any additional verses uh, he might have had. Yes. Sarah, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We really appreciate no, it. No, it's no, great talking you. to you. It's great to talk we to you. We love your performance. We love the show. And thank you for talking to us from the future. <laughs>